Earlier today, Rebecca and I were at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument for the annual Memorial Day ceremonies for the laying of the wreaths in remembrance of U.S. soldiers and sailors who died in combat. So, Becky, I think this was your first time that you were yes. out there. I said I would come. You said you would come, and, and uh, we've been in the neighborhood for, what, 100 years? At least. And uh, you've never been there, but you came out today. I did. Because we have a very special Memorial Day bar crawl radio. That's right. Yeah. And uh, what did you think of it? I thought it was magnificent. It was um, uh, beautifully done. Very Everything was set up nicely. There were a lot of dignitaries there speaking. I and knew all the, the services were there too. I knew the father that was giving the Father um, Murray. Father Murray that was giving the prayer. Right. I have met him. Um, and and what's playing now? This is the U.S. Navy band. Yes, it was a four quartet of horns. Yeah. Yes, and, and they, they were, really were very yeah, yeah. It was excellent. I have to say that um, after they said the prayer and then um, uh, what was the gentleman who? Um, uh, Peter uh, Galaseno. Galasanio. Galasanio welcomed everyone. Right, and he, we had him on the show um, a couple months ago talking about the Soldiers and Sailors exactly. Monument. Exactly, and this was at the Soldiers, Soldiers and Sailors Monument. This was right. the, the memorial was lo- located at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. And so then they had the, uh, the parade of the, of the soldiers, and they had Marines and sailors there. Um, <laughs> and they all, sat, they all came in, and we, we stood for the, um, the colors being... Uh, put forth. Presented, yeah. Presented, yes. And that was their flags, obviously. And, oh, the, it was led by a gentleman who was a son of a, I don't mean he was a son of a, of a Union Civil War um, soldier, but he it belonged to the sons of the Civil He had a Union, he, he had an, an ancestor. He had, a, he had an original Great-great-grandfather or something, there, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, and then there was a woman um, that was in a traditional, uh, I from I guess from that era as well, or I don't know when. Because that's when the monument was put up. It was put up right after the Civil War, and in remembrance of those who died. Right. On the Union side. But she must have represented the women that um, were there, were there helping nurse the men and mm-hmm. cooking and cleaning clothes, and um, and then uh, Linda Rosenthal had a speech about, um, and I can't remember the woman's name. Cor- Corbin, I think. Corbin, Margaret Corbin. Is it Margaret? I think that's what it was. I could look it up real quick. Yeah. But she was, she um, did some remarkable things. Right, that was, that was Helen talked about. Helen, Helen, Helen Lin- yes. Linda came you. up and she couldn't get her notes opened. Yes. And she, she improv. But uh, she did a great a job. Minutes. She did a wonderful job. And Gail Brewer was there and, yeah. So, uh, so then we sang the Star Spangled Banner, or they played it. They didn't invite anyone to sing, but people just started spontaneously singing. So I joined mm-hmm. and I got choked up. Mm. I just started, well, you know. I mean, it was it, very moving. I mean, whether we may not agree with everything our government is doing, we are still um, United Statesians. We belong to this country. Yes. Yeah, we, and, and, yes. And I like to think I'm, I'm patriotic, though I don't agree with everything the we government does. We don't wear does. it on our sleeves, but I feel very patriotic. Today, on Memorial Day 2019, we are honored to have with us four Vietnam War veterans on Bar Crawl Radio on the porch of Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar for a conversation on the history of the war their combat experiences, and their lives before and after the conflict. Their testimony was featured in the Hudson Warehouse 2018 Veterans Day dramatic production. Before we introduce the three men who fought for the U.S. military in the late 1960s in Vietnam, I want to introduce another veteran of the Vietnam War who's going to help us understand the complex history of that conflict. 
Marine Lieutenant Colonel Robert Black has had significant combat experience, is highly decorated for gallantry in the Battle of Hue during the Tet Offensive in 1968. He has lived, studied, served, and worked all over the world, and is presently a senior associate at Applied Integrated Security, LLC. As commanding officer of Company B, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, he received the Silver Star for leading an attack on Hill 881S and Hill 689 during the shutdown of Khe Sanh in Vietnam, July 1968. We want to welcome Lieutenant Colonel Black to Bar Crawl Radio, and we've got, sir, a lot of ground to cover because we're going to be talking about the Vietnam War. And we were going to start before the Vietnam War. Right. So the United States' involvement in Southeast Asia, mid-1900s, is large and complex. But we felt our listeners would appreciate a primer on the Vietnam War, if you'll help us, sir. Can you tell us, I'm curious, what was the French rule like for the Vietnamese? Well, I'm pretty widely read about all of that. It was very nasty. The same prison that John uh, McCain found himself in, in uh, as a POW, was built by the French to put the Vietnamese in, and they were tor- tortured as equally as badly as John McCain was. So it was already there. That prison was already existing. That's right, and it existed from, you know, like the, eight, the 19th century, simply because that's the way they were going to control the populace. So, um, but yet, there's a lot of French influence still in the country. I mean, there's still. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and Vietnamese food has is great food. A lot of French influence. Right. Right. right but right. that's that's not French people. Yeah. 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 So why did the U.S. get involved in helping uh, France? The French took over the Vietnamese Mandarin to have them run the country, uh, and they were taking profits out of rubber plantations and other colonial manners. Um, the, the French got helped by the United States as a result of the Second World War. Uh, Roosevelt did not want to turn Fran- that Indochina back to France but he was forced to because of this anti-communism thing in the United mm-hmm. States. He had to have France as an ally per his diplomatic corps, and if he didn't, we could have big troubles in Europe, and France had problems already with the Communist Party within its country. So we ended up not paying attention to the OSS people that recommended going with Ho Chi Minh uh, and giving... In order to help our listeners get an overview of this period, we're going to be giving more of a summary of what Lieutenant Colonel Robert Black spoke about. He's a total expert. He knows a lot about this conflict, but we thought we would focus rather on an overview. At this point in the interview, Lieutenant Colonel Black referred to the OSS. This was, in fact, the United States Office of Strategic Services. Uh, They had fought the Japanese in Vietnam, and after the war, the OSS DEER team recommended that the U.S. support Ho Chi Minh rather than the French. But the U.S. chose to support their allies, the French. Ho Chi Minh, on the other hand, became the head of North Vietnam and what became known as the Viet Cong, the arch enemy to the U.S. Giving Indochina back to to the French who came back and started their colonial stuff all over again. And as I say, French, even today, are hated by the Vietnamese because Mm. of that long period of time. Uh, You mentioned Ho Chi Minh, significant figure in in this war. Who was Ho Chi Minh? Ho Chi Minh was basically the father of um, modern Vietnam and he studied in the Soviet Union. He was an avowed communist. However, he was a pragmatist, not a hardliner. 
is considered the father of the country as George Washington has been for us. Basically, there was this set-piece battle that the French thought they'd win, and it was, it was Dien Bien Phu. In 1954, the French lost the Battle of Dien Bien Phu and were soon out of Vietnam. A couple of years later, the Geneva Accords separated North and South Vietnam, and there was a call for a national referendum on a reunification, but that never happened. In part, the French blamed their loss of Vietnam on the U.S., who did not support them. At the time, Robert was a child at a school in France, and he remembers his classmates attacking him. That was 1954. I remember it vividly because the day that Dien Bien Phu fell, I was in a private French lycée uh, as a junior high schooler, and we go out to recess, and my classmates pick up stones and start stoning me, for real. Wow. I mean, we didn't come to their aid. You're a son of a bee. So here's, this is how we think, you know, blah, 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 blah. Oh, my goodness. It, it was over immediately, pretty much, as school kids, school, school kid tiffs can go. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, but literally, I was stoned, and I've never forgotten that. Uh, there was going to be a vote of reunification, but that never two happened. Years, two years later, in 56, that was supposed to happen. You're correct, it did not happen. And why? Because it was canceled in the South by the... Um, French, poli- the excuse me, the, well, he was he was a Francophile basically. Uh, Ngoden Ziem in the South. He was the prim- pr- prime minister and the leader of the South. This is Diem. That's No Dean Diem, and the U.S. sided with Diem against the Viet Cong because there was a feeling of a growing threat of communism in that part of the world. Diem conducted a violent rule in the South. He was alleged to have killed and tortured 100,000 of his own civilians. But Robert uh, pointed out that such violence was also happening in the North. Lost in the South because of tort, blah, blah. Hey, you know, you're going to talk about that. You've got to talk about larger numbers up in the North that the North massacred in one fashion or another. Mm. So both sides, this was the way they did business. Right. And Americans can't comprehend that. But that's what happened. That's the kind of business that they did. You've got to understand that what we were working with, and a lot of people never under, on the ground never really understood it. They're working with corruption from the top to the bottom, pervasive. And you're talking about the South. The South, yes. In I'm 1961, sorry. President Kennedy began to build up advisory and support forces to help ZM fight the Viet Cong. By 1962, there were over 9,000 U.S. troops in South Vietnam. Then, in 1963, Ziem was assassinated in a CIA-supported plot, and so U.S. shifted its support to General Tu. Then, in 1964, U.S. Navy destroyers were attacked by the North Vietnamese. We were operating, the United States Navy was operating, not we, um, at that juncture doing sweeps for radar, signals intelligence, and other things by running these destroyers parallel to the coast. By our rules and by all international rules and standards, the United States vessels were in international waters and they were conducting um, radar sweeps, intelligence gathering sorts of things. And on, I believe it was 4 May, the Maddox, USS Maddox, a destroyer of the time, um, was engaged by, I can see pictures of three, maybe four um, Vietnamese um, uh, patrol boats, torpedo boats, specifically with 
automatic machine guns. They came out, they not only threatened, they approached, they would not break off, so Maddox opened fire on those. Maddox was hit. There is clearly one 50 caliber slug went into their superstructure, that's the technical part. But they got hit in other ways, but they bounced off, you know, that kind of thing. So that was... So Maddox was very big, the Vietnamese vessels were very small. It was a small. destroyer. Well, yeah. One, they were small torpedo boats, Chinese-made, Chinese... I mean, they would be used in a swarm attack. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be used alone. So now they have five of these, four or five of these. But they could do some damage. Oh, they could sink the ship. Right. Cripple it, then sink it if right. they really wanted to. Uh, and they really wanted to, but they weren't able to. But then two days later, on the 6th, that's is, this is the one that everybody says there were no there was no threat, nobody shot, blah, blah. Right. The Maddox and the Turner Joy. Turner Joy, right. The two went up. And there were boats that they perceived sorting and then threatening. In the threatening mode, they had radar blitz on at least two, possibly three. And they thought they were threatened, so they just shot away. Either way, uh, that led to Lyndon Johnson looking for a resolution to conduct further uh, hostile operations and beefing up the support of the South uh, and so on and so forth, and it was called in Congress the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. Right. Everybody says that was wrong, it's dubious, it's based on, and it's not. People don't get the whole story, so they think it was completely wrong. Partially wrong because he pushed the second one along. He could have done it on the first. Operation Rolling Thunder was initiated on March 8, 1965. U.S. combat troops increased from 82,000, then to 175,000, and more later that year. General Westmoreland instituted a strategy of attrition, kill the enemy rather than control the territory. Throughout this time, the Viet Cong in the south were resupplied from the north using the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Then in 1968, the Viet Cong surprised South Vietnamese forces with an organized, coordinated attack on 100 cities in the south, the Tet Offensive. Tet Offensive was long in planning, and there was no inkling it was going to happen. And until basically it happened. Uh, in terms of people on the ground, there were people in other places that were in the know, but had no idea how it was going to get affected. How did they get in place without being seen? Well, they'd been using the Ho Chi Minh Trail for a long period of time to infiltrate the south, so it was basically that. And they moved people also further up to the south of North Vietnam to come across the DMZ, and it, basically it was that kind of a surreptitious operation. And didn't the U.S. believe that things were kind of a little bit peaceful then, winding down at that point? There was There was some that thought that. For those of us on the ground, we didn't see any didn't lull. See it. Um, they were engaging us in other places to keep it as, as it's normal. If there had been a lull, I think a lot more people would have believed something big was going to happen. Okay. Because that's usually the way those things work. Right. So Tet blows up. And everybody in the United States, everybody, I mean, Johnson, uh, Westmoreland, most of the analysts, not all, thought that that was a diversion, and it wasn't. It was a, a speeding up of something to make sure they could do it while they still had some element of surprise. Because of what was going on back in the States with all of the protesting, it was perceived, wasn't it, as a successful aggression? No, not you don't really. think so? No, because it didn't get perceived 
in that way until Walter Conkright came on. Walter Conkright went away. He was briefed by my battalion commander. He operated and took pictures and talked from my area, my, my specific company's area, and basically went home and said, we can't win this war. And that was that turning point. Mm. Tet Offensive itself was a turning point in the sense that it did get backbone to the, to the South Vietnamese. So on the one hand, the South Vietnamese are getting better, and on the other hand, we're being told uh, we're no longer going to support you. The Tet Offensive as a turning point, it was like two turning points. One for the South Vietnamese, they had to get their backs up and do a better job. And two, for the Americans, politically, it's, it's over. Um, and then you start Johnson in March 68, starts peace talk stuff, peace overtures and so on. How did this war end? Miserably. You knew that this is the beginning of the end because North Vietnamese took territory in the south, all the way down to the Kamlo River. The South Vietnamese never got that back. It ended, it took longer than people wanted because Kissinger um, had, had told Nixon, if you want to do this properly and you say you want to do it and win, uh, you basically have to settle the China issue first. So I think it was 1972 that they started the China Open and normalized, quote, normalized, unquote, relations with the People's Republic of China. Right. And once that was done, then Kissinger turned full steam on to ending the conflict in Vietnam and in a manner that saved face. Yeah. What were the losses, quickly? Do you, do you, do you know the numbers? I think it's 58,000 killed in action. Americans. Mm -hmm. right. Americans and two, three times that amount on the South Vietnamese side. and Including and civilians more. and combatants. Yeah. 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 I yeah. Mean, any, you don't want a war fought in your territory. America likes fighting abroad because it I know is when I came home that I was dissed and nobody would hire me yes. if they found out I was a Vietnam vet. That's didn't part of the story, in, yeah. It's part of the story. It didn't matter. I was a Naval Academy grad and I had all kinds of scholarships and everything. Even got a layman fellowship in the state. You of had New the York. mark of Vietnam on you. Yeah. you. I think you're right. I never thought of it that way. I right, like the mark of Cain. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there is so much more to this history. Thank you, sir, for Thank your you. service to our country. Thank you, Vince. And for setting the stage for our conversation with the three other U.S. veteran, uh, Vietnam veterans that we're going to be speaking with. Um, thank you so yeah. much. And just remember, it's Memorial Day. We got to remember all our comrades who fell, yes. irrespective of when or how. Well, thank you, and I'll shut down. Okay, okay. Thank, thank you, sir. You. This is Bar Crawl Radio coming to you from Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on Memorial Day, 2019. We'll be right back. Those were some sounds from earlier today of the 2019 Memorial Day services at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument in Riverside Park at West 90th Street. This is Bar Crawl Radio, episode number 44, recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, and it is Memorial Day 2019. We just spoke with Vietnam War historian and Marine veteran Robert Black, otherwise known as Blackie. He introduced himself that way. And now sitting at our mics are three men 
who served in the war in the late 60s and early 70s. Their testimony was featured in the Hudson Warehouse 2018 Veterans Day play production, and during our conversation, we're going to share some of that dramatized testimony performed by Hudson Warehouse actors. After graduating from the Porter School of Engineering, James Britton joined the Air Force and was trained to operate a film camera. After the war, James was a cameraman and video editor in commercial and military films. At the end of his career, he shot commercials for the Girl Scouts of America. Thomas Pelletin, born in Queens, studied voice and opera at Oberlin College and then received an MFA in theater and opera performance at Carnegie Mellon. Tom was drafted and served with the 101st Airborne Division in Intelligence. After returning home, he continued his vocal career and then got involved with Hunger Ministry. He entered Yale Divinity School and was ordained deacon and then priest in 1991 at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Author Fiella was raised in Brooklyn and married in 1964. He was drafted in 1966 and shipped out to Vietnam in 1967. Wounded twice, he almost died twice of disease also. He received a Dear John letter from his wife while there and was discharged with honors in 1968. After the war, he felt unwelcomed by a hostile society. He got into drugs and wandered for a decade. Then in the 1980s, he worked in printing and then opened a betting factory with his brother. Welcome, gentlemen, to Bar Crow Radio. Before you were drafted or joined the military, um, what were your feelings about the Vietnam conflict? I mean, if you can go back to then, back in the 1960s, had you supported the war? Did you know about the war? Arthur, why don't we start with you? Uh, well, I guess, uh, yeah, well, um, I probably support, uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I grew up in a neighborhood where uh, four of my friends were in Vietnam already. And I'll never forget, I was sitting down in my mother's basement and they showed clips at the time on, on CBS News or NBC or whatever it was. And they were bringing, this was the first division down in um, uh, Three Corps. And uh, they were bringing down a wounded soldier on a stretcher with an, you know, an intravenous line. And it's a How old were you at the time? I was old. I was, I, I was already married, actually. I was going through a separation. Oh. I was 23. Okay, old. I was old. Old, 23. Yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> so what happened was that um, I said, you know, I said, I'm sitting down in my mother's basement. I have four friends there. One, two guys were in the Marine Corps, two other guys were in the, service, in the Army. So I said, well, I get off my ass, excuse the expression, I'll go and, and went to a Marine recruiting station in Jamaica, Queens. So I he explained a couple of things. I went home, and as soon as I got home, I had my draft notice in the mail. Oh. <laughs> so, so you were going to enlist? Yeah. And then you got home, and you had a draft notice. Exactly. So wow. what happened was that, uh, you know, <laughs> they said, report to Whitehall Street, and this and that at a certain day, if I were. And uh, sure enough, I was drafted. Did my basic at the Fort Jackson, South Carolina, my AIT at the Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And from there to Vietnam in '67, right. May of '67. And Tom, were you were you aware of the war before? Uh, I went to Oberlin. We were very aware of it, but yeah. it took a lot. It was a process of. Were people in the, Oberlin for the war or against the war? Uh, they would block the recruiters coming. Okay, it was oh, wow. very famous. Yeah, they blocked the roads, and now. But I was not part of that group for a long time, and it took kind of an unfolding of events and so forth to come to. Uh, skepticism about why we were there and 
ironically, um, in graduate school, I received, uh, this is a Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, received a draft notice and I ignored it. Oh, I wow. Said, I said it couldn't possibly happen to me. And they had... Uh, you uh, thought they would forget about you? Kind of. You know, <laughs> it was that denial thing. And they had a, a, someone on the administration that was geared to simply get the engineers and others out of going into the Army. His job was to write uh, appeals. And he did that for me as an opera singer, which was a little weird. It didn't work. Uh, and eventually I went before the, 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 the draft, draft board. board yeah. My father was very known in the town. He was fairly conservative. We're going to make an issue of you. You're going to be drafted. And um, ironically, by the time I was, I went and, and enlisted for another year to get what I thought would be a better deal, German language school, so they could go to Germany and avoid the war. And they said, fine, sign here. Day later, said, "Oh, there's no room in the German language uh, course, but we can offer you Vietnamese." I said, "No way." He said, "Well, we'll offer you intelligence because you know you'll probably end up at worst in an air-conditioned bunker in Saigon, uh, but maybe Germany or someplace else." None of that worked out. By the time I got uh, to basic training, which was awful in Fort Jackson, also, and in intelligence school, my entire—I went to two classes was uh, for Army intelligence, uh, order of battle. No one in my class wanted to go. No one thought the war was... We were taught in that environment about all the mistakes we had made, all the political things, all the things that uh, didn't make sense while we were there. So actually within the army itself, there was skepticism about what we were doing. But we were caught... We actually tried to uh, uh, hire a, a, a jet plane to go to Sweden. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Right. What uh, year was this? This is 1969, 1970. Okay. 1970. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And James, were, were your experiences similar? I mean, did you... Well, a bit different. Uh, I, after high school, I, I went into... I, well, I spent a year some working some manual stuff, and I said, you know, not for me. So I, I ended up... I, got, I went to a school, you, which you, you mentioned, uh, Porter School of Engineering Design, and uh, I loved it. It was a two-year thing, and I uh, learned trigonometry, solid trig, all that, and didn't do that in high school. Anyway, but anyway, I, once I graduated from there, um, two weeks after, I got a letter from the Army saying, go get your physical. So, I did that, and I knew what was going to happen. You did? Yeah, so I joined the Air Force before the Army drafted. So you preempted? Yeah, I kind of dodged a draft, I guess, you know. By joining, well, the, by joining the Air Force. Not your draft, by joining the Air Force. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, during basic training, I, I, did, I was a, like the oldest guy there, you know, 21. That's a little bit younger than you. But um, I was 21 years old, and uh, there's one day that come up was career day. And uh, I talked to the guy, and I told him about my schooling and everything like that. And... Uh, I said, um, okay, you know, okay. I showed them my records, and that was it. And the day that they called out the jobs, because we couldn't, there's no contract. So it went um, cook, 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 air police, air police, uh, James Britton, combat cameraman, Colorado Springs. Wow. That, so, came, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> I know it. I know. Cook, it cook, 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 cook. Air police, air police. Combat camera. Cook, 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 cook. <laughs> so, I did something right. I don't know what I did. Yeah, but I did you must have right. felt like you won the lottery there. I did. I did. I did. 
But I didn't know a thing about camera work. And there's one guy in the uh, with our with our group who got a letter from the congressman saying this guy's a good cameraman. Make him a cameraman. They made him a cook. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I don't know. So yeah. none of you have military background. Did you have any idea what you were getting into? How about we start with you, Tom? Absolutely none. And although there was fear and trepidation. I mean, by the way, I didn't win the lottery. My, I had my orders to Vietnam. The same day, finally, I got an invitation to audition for the Army Choir. And the lottery was announced, the first one. And I was the leap year date. I was the last date that would have been chosen. So wow. I lost, I lost the, the lottery. Wow. For sure. Yeah. Wow. How about anybody else? Was it was it a, a complete shock? The the experience. The Vietnam experience. Yes. I mean, just initially <laughs> when you got there. I mean, what was it like when you got there? Oh. You wanna, I, I, when I got there, I got there in May, as I said, May of about May fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven. And uh, usually, when you get there, um, I arrived at Tonsonua Air Force Base. And uh, I, they shipped me up to Pleiku, which is the Central Highlands. <coughs> and you were supposed to get a three-day orientation of what the country is supposed to be like and what to expect, you know, with the, the Viet Cong. Or Charlie, you know. Anyway, that didn't happen. Uh, they told me the next day at 1,800 hours, uh, get on a convoy, you're going, you're being shipped down to your unit. And I don't know what at the time where I was going, but it was the Idrang Valley. And at that time, <laughs> it was very hot. When I, I got there, it at uh, about a quarter to 12 midnight, and it was a forward fire base. Now, my MOS is artillery. I wasn't trained as an infantryman. You know? So <laughs> I'll, I'll try and be as brief as possible. Um, I get off the convoy. I didn't have a weapon or anything like that. They just had my jungle fatigues, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. This is kind of your first jump into Vietnam. This is your first yeah, view of it. Yeah, yeah. It was my first half a day. <laughs> right. Yeah. So anyway. I mean, you must have been shocked, I mean, to kind of like step off of a... Off well, I mean, I didn't... Into this. Yeah. Well, it was certainly a, a, a different environment. I mean, you, you know, it, it was like 110 degrees, man. I'm like, what the... At know, midnight. And, and you saw the tarmac, the heat rising off the tarmac. You know, I said to myself, holy jeez, man. I said, what? You know, it's, the, the heat was unbearable, actually. And it was yeah. humid, and so no air conditioning. Uh, yeah, and no, no. Anyway, uh, so what happened was I get there, and I reported to the uh, command post. I said, "This is PFC file reporting for a sergeant for duty." I was supposed to be assigned to a uh, a uh, parapet, which is a 105 howitzer b b battery. Okay, the reason why that was is because I was supposed to be a replacement. The place was getting overrun for four days, so they needed replacements right away, and that's how I was told to jump on a convoy and get down here really as quick as possible. So what happened was when I get there, 15 minutes later, I mean, when I got there, and the first sergeant said, listen, sit over there, sit on a bunch of sandbags, and uh, I'll get with you in a minute. The moment it struck 12 o'clock, midnight, all hell broke loose. I mean, completely broke loose. I mean, I never seen nothing like it in my life. I didn't have a weapon. I didn't have, I didn't where to hide. I just wanted to get on the ground somehow, you know? When you say all hell broke loose, what was going on? Well, there were there, it was incoming mortar fire, B forty rockets, a, a machine gun fire. They knocked out two tanks on the perimeter with B forty rockets. They ever seen the tank explode? 
you know, for the first time. <laughs> I said, oh man, I got 664 days left. <laughs> you know, You'd only know. been there for a couple hours. Yeah, but about 15 minutes actually. So anyway, what happened was uh, the place got overrun and I got jumped by two North Vietnamese soldiers. And I was slashed with a bayonet, of course, my face. And um, This was your first day? Yeah. Amazing. It was 1967. I have to say something, you know, between 1966 and 1968, half of the guys that were killed in Vietnam were in, th in those two years. The 58,000 people, guys that were total. killed, total, 25,000 of us were killed in two years. Yeah. Not 15 years, two yeah, years. Those two years. So what happened was I, you know, I, I finally killed the MVA soldier with my bare hands. This was the first person you've ever killed? Yeah, I never, yeah. yeah <laughs> I, never, I, never, I didn't kill anybody in civilian life, that's for sure. Until <laughs> then. No, I, well, it's your fight for your life. I mean, you know, you, you know, and the first thing that went through my mind, not that I was praying to God that I'd give me the strength. I remember when I was a kid, the first that got me off the ground, actually, I saw a fight. My father was a big fight fan. And Rocky Marciano was fighting the heavyweight championship of the world against the, Joe Walcott. And Walcott knocked him down in the first round. He got off the canvas and beat Joel Walcott in the, ninth, in the 13th round, okay? So being Italian, you know, we have Italian idols. I mean, you know, yes. like Joe DiMaggio and all those kind of things. So that's okay. what came into your head? So yeah, as I was fighting this Vietnam, so, uh, there yeah. were two of them actually that jumped me. I don't know what happened to the second one, basically. I really don't, because they got me on the ground. But I remember him getting off the canvas to win the fight. And that's how I, that gave me the strength to kill her. It was a woman, by the way. Oh my gosh. Okay? Oh my gosh. And I didn't know this until daybreak. I, you, you didn't know. even know? No, I didn't. You were just I fighting for your life. Yeah. So when, of course, when, when, uh, when the sun came up, you know, I crawled over to the, everything was burning. And I mean, it was like, I mean, it was a mess. Yeah. You know? Uh, and they were carting off bodies, the dead NVA soldiers in uh, in nets from Chinooks because they didn't want to leave the dead bodies to rot yeah. all over the place. Right. You know, so I turned the, I turned the soldier over, and it was a girl. It was, she was about 15 or 16 years old. Wow. This wasn't Viet Cong now. This was like this is NVA yeah. soldiers, trained cadre. Hmm. What I mean, went, what went through your mind when you saw that? Do you remember? Well, you went through. I'll, I'll be honest with you, and I hate to say this, I want to shock people, but uh, you know, I uh, and that's how I joined the infantry. By the way, there were I ran. I, I was bleeding, and one of the medics, I didn't even know who he was, patched me up a little bit, and I said to the first sergeant, I said, "You remember me?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Who were those guys saddling up?" In, in a, it was a it was a, a a platoon a squad going out on patrol. And I said to the first officer, I want to join them. So I looked at him and he said, what are you, nuts? They're infantry. <laughs> and I said, I, got, I was angry. I was totally angry. I just wanted to get even. Huh. You know, wow. and, the, and did you go out with them? Of course I did. I spent yeah. my, entire, my entire tour there. Service uh, with them. With them, yeah. yeah. You got angry. I mean, the, no, I, I, the, guy wanted, the, 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 the soldier wanted to kill me, man. Why shouldn't they be angry? Of course. <laughs> I mean, the, the, <laughs> I mean, you know, this was no, this was the real deal, man. I mean, this was, you know, this wasn't messing around here. I mean, yeah. I have, I have something. Sure. It took me a day in country before we were attacked. It took me 24 hours rather than half a day. day. Now I was promised as intelligence that I wouldn't be anywhere near any of this stuff, 
they sent us up for uh, airborne training, quick 10 days up in Northern I-Corps. And that first morning, sitting in a little train, at daybreak, the rockets came in. So my worst fears of being caught with my pants down and having to deal with rockets coming in. Wow. And the next two or three weeks were just constantly. None of that hand-to-hand, -hand, none of that visceral you know, uh, stuff. Right. But it was still real and terrifying. And what did we get ourselves I'm sure. into? No, yeah. In fact, I, I have a piece of uh, a testimony here that was uh, dramatized yes, by Justin that. Warehouse. Let's, let's play it now. Oh. About your, your your words about being being bombed while you're on the train. Here we go. There's a lot of activity in the mountains right above us. Major fighting going on. And early in the morning, I was going to the latrine, and your worst nightmare, with your pants down, we were rocking. Panic. You simply don't know what's going on. Eventually, I got to my area, and it was bad. The fourth night, because the helicopters were around us, they were targets for rocket attacks, so we were in the most vulnerable place. And sure enough, it happened. We were rocketed, and I ended up under my bed with my whole life going in front of me. This was the end. So, uh, this, this was your second day? Oh. It was the first full day was the first rocketing, and then three days later, was the second one. So James, you were a cameraman for the Air Force? Uh, yes. What uh, were you assigned to cover? Well, first of all, I, I, I got the left from Colorado Springs. I, I got my orders and then flew into Saigon. But that, and that was my headquarters where the film department was. And um, I covered, I documented the Air Force, of course, in the war, but I also shot for the Air Force News Review. And the News Review, um, was uh, at that time there was um, an hour, half hour film that would send every month send out to each air base in America and around the world rather, and um, half of it had to be from Vietnam and the other half was other news. So I would shoot a lot of shoot stuff for that. Um, my story is like not like you guys. <laughs> this is like an intermission compared to what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but you, you did have a moment there where you did something really crazy, uh, and you talked about Susan, and they did it. Uh, we have a dramatization of of your. Uh, I'm not going to give it away, but you, you'll recognize uh, this crazy moment in, in in your life. So, James Britton, this is your life. Okay. Just before we left. I asked the pilot if he could take off with the back of the plane down. I wanted to take my tripod, lock it in, tie me in, and shoot out the open back. Guy said, are you crazy? When we took off, there I was. Wind hitting me, what a great time. Filming the whole plateau of Quesar. So I have a question. Were, oh, you, yeah. were you such a daredevil before the well, war? Well, I, I did a lot of things like that and never thought about myself because I, I was looking through a camera 
and uh, I was like looking through for looking at a movie, and I saw everything in the you know in the movie, and uh, I would uh, you know hang out of helicopters. They'd strike me in, and get a lot of shots that way, and do whatever it takes to get the shot. But you rem you remember that moment? Oh that yeah! Oh yeah! Oh good. yeah! Oh yeah! But then the guy said, you know, we, we, you won't have a, a metal plate under your butt because yeah. the pilots would sit on the metal plate because they get shot. Right. You know, that's the first place they'll get right. hit. That's right. Yeah. So I said, okay, but uh, whatever. But that 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 picture, that shot, when I came back to the states, that was in the video. That was in the it was in the video. It was filmed. It was in the film uh, of the half of the, the uh, news review. Right, I so they, 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 they edited that. As a matter of fact, that whole 15 minutes of, <laughs> of the news review was my stuff. Wow. No one knew it, but I did. <laughs> hey, that's me doing that. So, by by wow. the way, you also said in your testimony that was played by the Hudson Warehouse uh, production for the, for the Veterans Day uh, production was that you felt your camera would save you. Well, well it... And I, you wouldn't I, be killed because you were a cameraman. Well... And that's because, I think I just mentioned it, it's because I was looking at it like looking through a film, like looking at it in a movie, looking at a movie and separating myself from it. So that's how, that's how I felt. Tom, you were um, in the, uh, the Army Intelligence. What was yes. your main job? I was an order battle um, uh, analyst, which meant that we collected... And I was the lowest level that I could be. So I was dealing with the actual uh, soldiers, pilots, and so forth, the gathering information. We had to make sense of it and had a huge map uh, where showing enemy activity. And my job was to brief the pilots because it was the air about where they would encounter uh, uh, opposition. However, within two or three months of being there, it was clear that the armies in intention was to withdraw from contact. It was called Vietnamization. So my job essentially was to tell pilots where to fly to <coughs> avoid being shot at. We didn't want them to engage. The war had, was supposedly running down. This is all the, uh, the, the Kissinger-Nixon st okay. st strategy. The, yeah. that, that's what I did. And when that changed at the end of the time I was there, we went back into Quezon. Then we were, I was briefing differently. It was briefing where they had to engage. So that was the Vietma Vietnamization? Yeah, of the war, of yeah, the war. yeah. It was to make the, it seem that the Vietnamese could handle everything and we right. could withdraw. Withdraw. That wasn't true, but that didn't make any difference. Arthur, um, you described combat as being outside a lot. Clearly you were outside, in the elements. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not enough food not being able to change your clothing. Um, I just wanted to play a little testimony that you gave about being outside. And then I'd like you to, to, uh, to, you know, to make some uh, comments about it. We finally get into Kantu. It's brutal, house to house, knocking on doors, looking for the enemy. You're being shot at, shooting us from houses, buildings, and rubble. It was a bombed out, war-torn city. When the NVA came into the city, they killed all the American sympathizers. So there were bodies lying in the streets, animals on fire. The stink was disgusting. And you had to live with that, sleep with that. 
They told us it would take a few hours to secure the city. It took 11 days. We had no food. No water. We had to complete the mission. Sometimes I'd scavenge the dead soldiers. I'd find sticky rice in their bag. It was putrid, but I was so hungry I'd still eat it. During that time, I slept in the rubble. In the central highlands, it gets very cold. I used to shiver at night. I'd pull a few dead bodies of the enemy over me to keep me warm. And, uh, and, and there you go. That, that piece was read by Jake Lesh uh, wow. of the Hudson Warehouse. Um, did any of you other have similar experiences being outside, the smell, the... Um, you know, that visceral sense of war that was around you? I did, but from the air. Yeah. I, I, I did some flying with the forward air control, and uh, <clears throat> they would have a, uh, a pilot that would stay in one area for a long time, and they would fly around and know the area, know it. Um, so if they saw smoke coming up, if they saw something, they'd know that something's going on, you know, the Vietnamese, the Vietnam, or... Viet Cong coming in. So I'd fly that, I'd fly that, and then we'd, and then we'd fly it and dive down. This is in a Piper Cub. And we'd dive down and shoot a, a phosphorus rocket into there, and then fly away and then call for an air support, and they would bomb that place. Uh, um, and one time, uh, I, we, did, we did that, and, but they, they brought in B-52s, and they they dropped, they dropped some, some bombs that explode in the air, and it comes down like fire. And the B-52s are way up there, you know, and if, if I, was, I was in the plane, in the Piper Cub. Uh, much lower to the ground. Much lower to the ground, yeah, but uh, if they'd have dropped it like a few seconds earlier or later, it could have fell on us because we were very close to it. Right. It, it was so, there was so much smoke it started to rain. It brought. It made a shower. The smells were everywhere. It, it smelled differently. We were on a fire base, and we didn't have any contact much with anything else. But there were shit burners. That was the thing. So that was always being permeating everything that you did. And there were so many unfamiliar smells. But the worst thing when we went back to Kason three years after the Marine siege, it had been denuded by Agent Orange, and the whole environment was putrid. There was also the death that was there, and then when we were attacked the first day we were there, and they dumped a busload, uh, 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 a truckload of dead bodies in front of me, of course. The, the smells, we, we, we are so sanitized in our culture right. that suddenly you are assaulted by enormously troubling <coughs> smells. Right. We are talking with Arthur Fiella, Tom Palatin, and James Ritten. They served our country in the Vietnam War in the late 60s and early 70s. Today is Memorial Day, May 27, 2019, and we are honoring these brave men. We are Bar Crawl Radio, and we will be right back. Thank you. 
after your tour of duty, you returned to a country that was, for the most part, against you. Tom, you talked about an incident in the airport. Let's hear your words as presented in the Hudson Warehouse production. When I came back from Vietnam, well, in the airport in Seattle, I was in uniform. Someone came up to me and spat in my face. Remember, that was what was going on. Not asking me how I felt about anything. I was a symbol. You all remember coming back to the United States? What that was like? Yeah. How did you handle it? Oh. Um, let's see, Arthur. I, I, got, I got home in 68. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah. My wife already left me. Uh, so I got home and, of course, my... This was at Idlewild Airport before it was named Kennedy. <laughs> so, um, um, the my folks were there, and um, I remember going home and uh, not feeling very not feeling very comfortable uh, being home. I just didn't. I remember when I left, uh, we were in a. We were in a brutal fight, and I was four days left on my tour of duty. That's when I was taken out of there. And the moment that helicopter took, got off the ground, you know, I saw that red, that red soil, that red dirt, <laughs> and I almost didn't want to come home because, my, truthfully, my family was there in Vietnam. They, I considered them closer to me than my whole family. I just, I felt so terrible leaving. It's like I, it's like I was there to protect them. And I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't accept me going home. Although I went home, but you know, I just, I just couldn't accept it. So you when I got, so when I got, yeah, when I got home, it's like, I just didn't feel, I mean, I felt like a, like a, squ a square peg in a round, a round hole. I couldn't, <laughs> I didn't fit in. I really didn't fit you in. You kind of wandered for about 10 years. Yeah, I wandered for a long time. Yeah. And I lived in different countries. I lived on a, I lived on a boat in Antigua for 16 months on a 76-foot Brixham trawler wow. that was owned by a Danish couple. <laughs> so I got, I got a gig on that boat. Anyway, there's not much left in Antigua after a year and a half, I tell you that. So I had to come back to New York. Anyway, uh, but no, I didn't. You know, I got into drugs and all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, you know, uh, I don't think that was an uncommon story. No, it wasn't. But you know, then I got married again, and that didn't work out. I met someone else, and that didn't work out. I'm with this woman now for 35 years. So, oh, great! So anyway, That's you great. know, so it wasn't. It's very uncomfortable. You know, I remember go, going for a job, and to fill out. The, the woman asked me, "What? Well, what, what? What's your what's your qualifications? You know, what? You, what is your specializing in the service?" I couldn't answer the question. I didn't say I was. You know, I was taught to kill people. I mean, what am I supposed to put on the application? That? <laughs> I wasn't hired, you know, I mean, that's a fact. I mean, it's a sad thing, but that's how it was, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and it kind of like, you know, destroys you in many ways. Tom, what was your experience? I, I think I had a very common one, especially at that period. Um, I came back and I met my parents at the airport for one hour because they were going to Australia. I came back a month early and they couldn't change this trip. So I was left home with a brother I didn't get along with. I just desperately wanted to talk about what had gone on. 
I went to see friends, I took a, a road trip, and I was literally given maybe a minute or two, and the subject was absolutely not on the table. Mm-hmm. No one wanted to hear anything about what was going on. And over and over again, incident after incident, uh, of feeling that rejection, not being part of the society, holding it in. So I just brought it all inside, and it stewed for years. Until I was in therapy with a, and, and dealt with it, and that led to um, uh, writing about it, uh, or on discovering letters that I had written about it, and the Vietnam Memorial here in New York, which is a series of uh, excerpts from letters uh, two of my letters are on the memorial, and it was made into a book and an HBO movie as well. But it was consistently, no one really wanted to hear about what you went on, especially my contemporaries who have been to college, most of them got out of it by doing one way, one thing or the other. Right. My class in Oberlin, I think there were three of us who ended up in the Army. Right. One they went to seminary, they went to graduate school, they did all sorts of things to avoid it, and for some reason I... You, you were caught up in it. You eventually went into the ministry. And well, that was the, that was 20 years later. Right. Right. I was, you know, I, I, I was sent to Germany uh, after Vietnam in the army, and I stayed there, and that started to try to revitalize some kind of musical career or whatever else. Um, that's what happened. But I hadn't, I didn't want anything to do with the United States whatsoever. I'd been lied to. I'd been abused, I had been manipulated, and I thought it was just simply a country of lies at that point. Mm-hmm. Very, very different experiences. Uh, James, what about you? How did you come out of the war? Well, um, I'd like to go back a bit okay. to when I went in, when I flew in from uh, flying into uh, San Francisco. Um, I, was, I was on the f- front part of the plane, and uh, this guy on the other seat was heckling me. Really bad, really bad. And, and um, um, there was a woman sitting close to me, and uh, she, she took care of him, and she, 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 she was good. She, was, she stopped him from doing that. And uh, I ended up, I, I got her address, and she got my address. And we wrote letters uh, the whole time I was there. It was like it was like a love affair, long distance. And wow. It was wonderful. And uh, when I came back, I did stop and see her, and uh, with her with her a little bit, but it wasn't the same, you know. Right. And uh, but uh, coming coming back, you know, I was told not to, not to wear the uniform because of what's going on, and uh, I reported my next gig, you might say, was uh, in uh, a base, uh, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. So that was my, I had a year's break still in the service, doing filming, and even flew some jets and stuff like that. You had a chance to kind of come down from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I, you know, I didn't really have the, I didn't really have the experience that these guys had, you know, yeah. being there. But I could have been, you know, I could have been shot down. <laughs> you right. know, you just yeah. didn't know, you know. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I just wasn't, so. Mm. Well, thank goodness. Yeah. The worst comment I had, which is typical, someone came up to me, who I didn't know, a friend of my family. Yeah, after the war, and said, oh, well, I see you're back. It didn't seem to... It didn't seem to do you any any bad things. You're okay, aren't Oh, you? wow. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Just yeah. 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 Gosh. Especially in the Well, thank you very much, gentlemen.
For our next BCR episode, we will be talking with the actors and director of the Hudson Warehouse Veterans Day production, featuring the testimony of U.S. military veterans of Vietnam and also the writer. Following our conversation, we will air a radio play version of the battlefield remembrances of Arthur Fiella, Tom Peloton, and James Britton. This was a special and important BCR episode for Becky and me. Whether you agree with the decisions of our government, in this moment of distraction and disintegration, we need to refocus our minds and spirits on that which connects us. We are, in fact, a country bound together in this experiment called democracy. And so we want to thank the four Vietnam War veterans who joined us on Memorial Day 2019. Robert Black, Arthur Fiella, Tom Pendleton, and James Britton. And we want to thank you, gentlemen, for sharing this day with us and for your service to our country.